Well, today's gospel tells a rather remarkable story, but the meaning of this story may not be immediately apparent. We may overlook the meaning and the purpose of this story because this story, I submit, does not follow the pattern that we are used to seeing in most stories. Normally, when we hear a story, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and, there, and then there's an end. And where is the meaning of the story found? At the end. We see this pattern all the time. We read it in books. We see it in movies. We hear it in jokes. We use it to construct arguments. Point one, point two, point three, conclusion. This happened, that happened, then this happened. They lived happily ever after. That is not the pattern in today's gospel. Instead, the conclusion of this story happens right in the middle of the narrative. And because it comes in the middle of the narrative and not at the end, there is a danger that we are going to miss what it is Jesus is saying to us. We may mistake the end of this story for the meaning of the story. And admittedly, this story kind of lends itself to that misunderstanding. What's the last thing that happens? A dead man comes back to life. That's a pretty big deal. That makes for a very nice, very satisfying kind of conclusion. Jesus went here, he met so-and-so, he did this, then he brought this dead guy to life again. They all lived happily ever after. What's wrong with that? <laughs> but the raising of Lazarus is not the meaning of this story. The raising of Lazarus contributes to the meaning of this story, and it points to the meaning of the story, but it is not itself the point. The meaning of this story is found right in the middle in the conversation that Jesus has with Martha when he arrives at Bethany. The conclusion or the goal towards which this whole story is moving is found in these words. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die and everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Today's gospel concludes with a question. And that is a question that pertains as much to us as it does to Martha. The question that Jesus asks her is the same question that Jesus asks all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this enough to give me your life? Do you believe this enough to give me not only your life, but to give me the life of your beloved? To give me the life of your brother? or your sister, or your husband, or your wife? Do you believe me enough to give me the life of your child? Now, what does it mean exactly to believe in Jesus in that way? What is he asking us to do? What kind of faith is he looking for? Our culture usually defines belief in one of two ways. The first way that we define belief is in terms of mental assent to conceptual propositions. I recognize the validity of the evidence. I acknowledge the logic of the argument. Therefore, I can be said to believe it, or even better, I can be said to know it. It has been demonstrated by reasonable argument and sound evidence. So of course, I accept it as true. Or we define belief in another way, something that I choose to believe despite the fact that I may not have any evidence whatsoever that it's true. It may not even be the kind of thing that lends itself to evidence or to argument, 
So that means I am at complete liberty to decide whether I want to believe it or not. Now, by and large, those are the two ways that our culture defines belief. We call one of those objective, and we call the other one subjective. And whichever of those definitions we use, belief is almost entirely something that we do with our minds. But the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about is different from either of those forms of belief. It is not less than either of them, but it is larger than both of them. We don't practice the kind of belief that Jesus asks for only with our minds. We do it with our hearts and with our wills and even with our bodies. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our mind and with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength. In other words, the kind of belief that Jesus is asking for is a belief that touches every part of our lives. There is no part of our life where we are not called to live out our belief because there is no part of us that God does not want to save. And here is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable. (laughs) Because oftentimes, we want to give some part of our lives to God. We want to give some part of ourselves to God. But what we're hoping for is that God will be able to do something with that one part without changing the rest of us. When we approach God in this way, our prayer goes something like this. Lord, I've got things under control in this area of my life and that area of my life, but there's this one little nagging problem over here, and I really wish you'd do something about that. Don't worry about the rest. I've got that covered. I need your help with that one little problem. Amen. (laughs) You've prayed that prayer. (laughs) That kind of prayer rarely works out because we are not wired in that way. Every part of us is connected. Our heart, our mind, our will, our strength, it is all of a piece with one another. Our work, our families, our hobbies, our past, our future, it is all connected. And a problem in one part of our life will likely show up in other parts of our life. But the inverse of that is true as well. Once God has a hold of us in one part of our life, God is going to want the rest of us. And we see this in the raising of Lazarus. Jesus doesn't just raise one part of him. He raises all of him. When God goes to work on us, he does so with the intention of transforming every part of our lives because there is no part of our life that falls outside the reach of his redemptive love. There is no part of our life that is not capable of reflecting and bearing God's glory. So the first hurdle that we have to get over when we think about what it means to believe in Jesus in the way that he asks is to get over the idea that he's only asking for part of us. He's not asking for part of us. He's asking for all of us. And in fact, he will be satisfied with nothing less than all of us. What about the second hurdle that we have to get over if we are to believe in the way that Jesus asks? Here again, the story of the raising of Lazarus gives us a clue. What do you need to have in order to have a resurrection? You need a dead body. Jesus knows this. After hearing that Lazarus was ill, he waits for a full two days before he goes back to Judea. Why does he wait? He waits because he's interested in one thing, the glory of God. 
he tells his disciples, this illness is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. For your sake, I was glad I wasn't there so that you may come to do what? To believe. They had seen healings before. They had seen Jesus deal with this problem or that problem. Here was a problem of an entirely different kind. This was not about just fixing one problem or one part of a person's life. This was about fixing every part of that person's life. Jesus was about to ask all of them, not just Mary and Martha, but everyone watching, to believe in a way that they had not before. And what that means for us is that if we're going to believe in the way that Jesus invites us to believe, we, like Lazarus, have to learn what it means to die. If we are to surrender ourselves to Christ in our hearts and in our minds and in our wills and in our bodies and every other part of our lives, we have to learn what it means to lean into the vulnerability and the brokenness of our lives in each of those areas. Not because God wants to see us wallow in misery or bring us to our knees, but because the brokenness of our lives is an opportunity for God's glory to be manifest. We've heard that twice in a row now. We heard it last week, and now again this week we heard it. Last week, it was the man born blind. Remember that story? The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, wrong question. This man was not born blind because someone is to blame. This man was born blind so that God's glory might be revealed here. Blame is not in view. God's glory is in view. And now this week, we hear the exact same thing again. Mary and Martha send Jesus a message and say, Lazarus is about to die. How does Jesus respond? Death is not in view here. God's glory is going to be the outcome of this story. What we see as a crisis or an opportunity for blame is an opportunity that God uses for transformation. So we cannot hold back some part of ourselves or our lives from God, thinking that God's not interested. God wants it all. And neither should we expect that once we give ourselves to God that he's going to settle for anything less than resurrection. So, okay, you say, I'm ready to believe that. I'm ready to give myself to God. I'm even ready to accept the fact that in order to be raised with him, I'll have to die with him. Now, what exactly does he want me to do? How do I do that? Once again, today's gospel gives us a clue. If you really want to discover God's will for your life, the first thing you probably need to do is stop looking for it. Stop running around, looking for it over here, looking for it over there, looking for it everywhere, trying this, then trying that, wondering why nothing seems to be working, wondering why you don't hear the voice of God and getting more and more frantic as you make every effort possible to try and figure out what God wants from me. Stop all that. Learn instead to be still. Learn to be still in your heart and in your mind and in your body and in your soul. Learn to be silent. And we have in today's gospel a very good example of the kind of stillness and the kind of silence that we need to practice if we want to hear the voice of Jesus. Lazarus is our example of this. Learn to be still in the way a dead person is still. Learn to be silent in the way a dead person is silent. St. Paul talks about this. He says, consider yourself dead 
because then you will discover what it means to live. When we practice that kind of stillness and that kind of silence, then we are better able to hear the voice of Jesus when he calls, come out. Come out and see the glory of God. Come out and receive the glory of God manifest in your life. Come out and be free of your bonds and go your way. It is not easy to practice that kind of stillness and it is not easy to practice that kind of silence. In fact, it hurts to be that still and it hurts to be that silent. In fact, it hurts to death. This is why Jesus is clear about what it's going to cost. But this is also why Jesus is clear about what he has to offer, something that no one else can offer. Jesus says to Martha and to Mary and to his disciples and to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this?